Our scripture reading this evening is Psalm 103. This evening from the Belgian Confession, we'll be studying the being of God, especially his attributes. Much of what we'll be talking about is expressed beautifully in this psalm. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust." As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, We ask you to look upon us in grace as we look away from ourselves into the face of your Son, whom you have appointed our mediator and Savior. As all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in your Son, guide us by your Holy Spirit into the true understanding of the doctrines of Christ. May our meditation upon his truth produce in us the fruits of righteousness to the glory and exaltation of his name the instruction and building up of this congregation, and the salvation of the lost through our witness. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our lesson from the Belgic Confession this evening is Article 1. Last week, as an introduction to our study of the Belgic Confession, we focused simply on the introductory phrase, we all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths. This evening we look at this article as a whole. So we will say these words aloud together. God has spoken to us in his word. This is our confession of faith in response to God's word. Let us say together, 
we all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we begin our study of Article 1, now in more detail this evening, of the Belgic Confession, I want to remind us a bit about what our goal is in all of this. And one of the best ways to summarize the goal of any theology, any reading, any studying of Scripture, is what my pastor was fond of saying when I was in high school, that all good theology should lead to doxology. That the purpose of all theology, of learning more about God, is the response of worship. Well, I want to add a bit to that, that the the purpose of that is not just um, along a sequence of events, so that first you're studying some theology, and that's hard and difficult, and then in response to that, you get to the moment of worshiping God, but that really the entire work of speaking of God in response to His Word of seeking to think more wisely about him, to think more in accordance with the scriptures, that that whole work is itself worship. We just heard the words in our call to worship from Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, in the structure of Hebrew poetry, that second verse gives a parallelism where the second phrase is explaining what the first is. The first phrase, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. You could summarize all theology, and I think in a particular way this evening, our study of Article 1, as doing that. We are ascribing to the Lord, describing him in terms of the glory that is due him. And when we do that, the second phrase says, We are worshiping the Lord in the splendor of holiness. All that we are doing in this work is itself worship. So we're going to sing in a few moments, Psalm 103, as a response to this, but this is itself worship. Well, why do I highlight that now in particular? Well, number one on your outline, idol factories. I'll explain that phrase in a moment. We must constantly beware the temptation to make God in our own image. John Calvin, in book one of the Institutes, famously said that our hearts are perpetual factories or forges of idols. That there's something about human nature that is constantly seeking something other than God to worship. And Calvin, at that point, is wrestling with why is it the case that human beings so constantly make idols? Even in the history of Israel, those who... Uh, believed in the Lord, trusted the Lord, worshipped the Lord, were tempted to make idols, physical things, as a way of worshipping the Lord. And Calvin argues there that is because our hearts first generate ideas about God, feeling about God, ways we prefer to think of God that are contrary to who God is. That we generate the idol from within and then we want to make the physical thing to reflect it. This is the case even when the physical thing is not being made. That we are constantly tempted in how we feel, how we think about God, to be imposing ourselves on Him, 
to be dragging him down to us, to be speaking of him and thinking of him in a way that is really in our image, as being really just like us, but perhaps you know, stronger, better in certain ways. Because of that temptation, letter A in your outline, for this reason, we must be open to the value of theological instruction that challenges us to think deeply and beyond our full comprehension. Because we know we are constantly tempted to make God like us, to make him fit in our minds, faithfulness requires that we be open to hearing things about God that don't fit in our minds. Faithfulness requires that we be open to hearing things about God that challenge us, doing work that is difficult in this task. All of that because we are called to know him and to know him faithfully and rightly. John 17 verse 3, Jesus said this, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Well, why am I saying this now, that we need to be open to being challenged to think about things that are beyond our full comprehension? Well, when it comes to a sermon, in my preparation for a sermon, in what you are anticipating, I trust when you come to a sermon, you know that I'm going to do some work to try to persuade you that what we are talking about matters, that what we are talking about is valuable, it's important. But there is a temptation when we expect that, when we do that, to then make what we are going to talk about submit to that. On the one hand, we want to be persuaded that these things matter. You are sitting here with a bunch of squirming children. This is hard work. It is the end of Sunday. And you want me to persuade you that there is a point to this, a reason for this. And the moment we start talking later on about words like incomprehensible, you might be tempted to wonder, what is the point? Well, we have to be careful at that moment. Because this can become a kind of filter that prevents us from growing in wisdom about just what matters. This concern to be, want, to want to be persuaded that it matters can become a filter that keeps us from growing in our instincts, our sensibility about just what is value and important, valuable and important to be talking about. More specifically, as we just read from John 7, 17, we are made to know and enjoy God. Growing in our knowledge of God is not the sort of thing we can ask what is the point about. Growing in our knowledge of God is not the sort of thing we really can even ask why about. It is the end of the line for all why questions. Right? When the, when the three-year-old asks why over and over and you give an explanation, okay, well, why that? Eventually, you get all the way back to knowing and glorifying God and enjoying Him as our Creator. We saw this in Genesis chapter 2 this morning. We were made to dwell in God's presence. We were made to know him, to be in fellowship with him. And this work we are doing is part of that. This is particularly urgent if we insist upon full comprehension. Right? A, a good teacher at the end of the teaching will leave you feeling like, ah, now I understand. This evening, there are going to be multiple points where you're not going to feel that way. What I hope you will feel is in fresh ways, ah, I'm not sure I do understand this as much as I thought I did. And often, that is the point that needs to be made. Because often, we have made God more like us to make him fit in our minds, and the result of that so often is the creating of an idol 
or at the very least being less than faithful in how we are thinking about God. And so one of the things the Belgic Confession does for us in using words like simple, which is going to challenge us, words like incomprehensible, just the idea of eternal alone, that very idea, one of the things the Belgic Confession is doing is telling us, be careful. Do not force God into your own mind. Do not make him submit to your ideas about what matters, what it's valuable to talk about. Indeed, part of the act of worship is acknowledging that God is beyond us. That is our work this evening. Well, the Belgic Confession explains all of this in terms of God's attributes, ways that the scriptures speak of who God is. And as we do this, I'm going to give you, you can look ahead under number two, I'm going to give you a verse for each one of those, especially the most mysterious ones, what we call the incommunicable attributes, the ways in which God is, is, is entirely unlike us. I'm going to give you a verse. But there's actually two ways that we come to know God's attributes, and it's very important that we keep both of these ways in mind because these two ways are behind why we talk about God's attributes the way we do. Letter B, finally. God is made known by the creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, we do not have time this evening to discuss all of this in fullness, but as we go through God's attributes, if you were to ask, why is it such a big deal that we talk about who God is in this way? Why is it such a big deal that we speak of him as being eternal, invisible, unchangeable, incomprehensible, infinite? All of these things we cannot fully fit in our mind. The reason is this. Those are the things about God and who God is that the creation most clearly proclaims. That the very reality of reality at all, that the very existence of the universe most clearly proclaims. Those are things about God that the way we talk about him are flowing from centuries, millennia of God's people looking at the world and saying the very existence of creation points to the existence of the divine being. And those things about him are the ways in which that is the case. I wish I could just say that point over and over as we go through the attributes. I'm going to be tempted to do so, but I can't. I shouldn't. But I want you to remember this, beginning, middle, and end. That's the reason it is so important in Christian theology that we speak of God in these ways is that we're not just pointing to Bible verses, though we are pointing to Bible verses. We are saying that these Bible verses are alerting us to something about God that the very existence of reality points to. That for the creator to be the creator, the ground of being, the source of reality, this is who he is. Let her see then, the scriptures reveal God more fully, all in a way that resonates with the ways in which God is made known by creation. And both of these then, Psalm 19, the heavens declare God's glory, looking around and seeing how the very existence of the universe proclaims the creator, that together with what the scriptures say, fit together perfectly. They speak of the same being, the same God, and they speak of it in such a way that those things resonate. They fit together. They go together. And Christian theology, Christian churches, Christians through the centuries have loved describing this, singing of this, talking about this, being challenged by this, thinking about it in a way that blows our minds because at that moment, 
is that turning toward God as the creator. All right, number two. Now, what I'm going to do now is I'm simply going to go through this list. Um, I don't know, someone tell me if it gets annoying when I say this kind of thing. I'm actually not sure. But we could easily have a whole sermon series on the attributes of God. We probably should one day. So at each point when we go through these, you may sense that that's great. I agree with you. I'm going to go through them quickly. The goal is to highlight. If I had to summarize in terms of one of these, the goal is to highlight letter C, God's incomprehensibility, his being bigger than us, all right? So if you ask, Pastor, why are you talking about these things the way you are, emphasizing what you're emphasizing from the Belgian Confession, that is why. And where does that come from? Everything we've said up to this point. We are tempted to make God in our own image, making him fit in our mind, and we need to be challenged to do otherwise. Number two, the attributes of God. The scriptures reveal God's attributes such that we can know God, but always in a way that is limited by our creaturely ability to understand. I'm going to say this one more time. The scriptures reveal God's attributes such that we can know God, but always in a way that is limited by our creaturely ability to understand. And the other way to say that second part, it's always limited by our dependence on God making himself known. That's the way you would hold all this together. God making himself known. Do you sense the importance of saying both of these things? Everything I've been saying so far are challenging us not to make God in our own image. You might be tempted to conclude, well then can we know God at all? If at every point the way we're describing God being eternal, for example, outside of time, we arrive at something that makes us think, I'm not even sure I understand this anymore. What have we done? Do we then not know him? Well, no. God is, in the, his, is revealing himself in that. That there is something true about him that we are knowing, even as we say we cannot fully know him. One example, this is not even letter A yet. I know, we're going to go through the attributes quickly. One example, we often describe God negatively. Right? So if you say God, God is eternal, we're saying he is not bound by time. There you go, you've got letter B. Okay, you can fill that one in. Eternal, God is not bound by time. When we say this, we're really just saying something negative about God. We, we can't picture what it is to be outside of time. We can't say what that is. We can't describe what that is like. But what we can say is that he is not bound by time. That's what we mean by creaturely limitation. We're saying something true about him that we can know, but we're saying it in a way that is limited by what we can understand as creatures. Okay, letter A. With, with these, um, the initial words, I'm simply going through the language of the Belgic Confession. So the confession started, we all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is, and here we have letter A, a single and simple spiritual being. God is one. He is not composed of parts. That's what the word simple means. God is all of his attributes and is a spirit not having a body like us. God is one, and that oneness even is beyond our full comprehension. This is more than simply saying there is only one God. 
saying God is one. And he is one, the way we describe this is that he is simple, meaning he's not a bunch of parts put together, not a bunch of things about him put together, but he is simply the fullness of being, and his attributes are like a, a refraction of that, different ways of talking about that one being of God. You cannot take a part from him and have him remain God. You cannot take a part from him. God is that one simple fullness of being. And already here, we are saying things beyond our full comprehension. We're saying the word simple basically means the opposite of how we think the word simple works. Right? You say, how could you say simple? Look at all these words. Is there anything but simple? Simple theologically means there is a oneness to his being from which parts cannot be separated. And this is one of those points most at which the existence of the creation points to the existence of God. Because all created things are not this way. We are all made of parts. There are things about us that could be otherwise, that could be changed, and we would still be us. We are, the word for it is that we are contingent. We could be otherwise. And the existence of things that could be otherwise, the existence of things that uh, are, do not necessarily exist, but exist in a way, again, that could be otherwise, points to the one who could not be otherwise, to the self-existent one, to the one who simply is being. And Christian theology has said, flowing from the scriptures, reflecting on the nature of reality, that this is a way creation itself points to God. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. What we're wanting to say here is that all of this is the claim being made in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And I want to point out something in the language of the Belgian Confession at this point. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God. The structure is not, uh, we believe God exists, and here's how we talk about our God. Right? There's that God over there, this God over here. We have our God, and this is how we talk about him. Nor is the claim, some people think there's a whole bunch of beings in the world we call gods. We think there's only one. Listen to the language. We confess that there is a single and simple spiritual being. There must be. There must be the self-existent one. There must be the one who is the cause of the existence of reality, the one who upholds all things. And we call that being God. We, instead of worshiping the creation, are worshiping the source of creation, the ground of being, the one who called all things into existence. Again, why go to such great lengths to emphasize that? Because that is the way in which creation points to God and to his existence. Well, we can say more. As that one being of God is reflected in his works, as he creates the world, as he acts in redemption, there are things we can say about him in, in a way that is, made, is revealed in his works. We already said he is eternal. He is not bound by time. Incomprehensible. Let us see. God can be known, but not fully. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Notice it is something being celebrated at this point. There are many who will complain about Christian theology right here. They say, this is ridiculous, Pastor. I did not follow even half of what you just said about the word simple. I know, it's difficult. Part of that's my fault. My fault. Part of that is simply because the doctrine itself is so difficult. But the scriptures at that point don't complain. They celebrate. 
They say, how glorious then is this God that he is beyond our full comprehension. Letter D, invisible. 1 Timothy 6 verse 16 who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Notice again, the move toward worship, the response of worship. Letter E, unchangeable. Malachi 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, to talk about God's unchangeableness, his immutability, immediately goes deep beyond our full comprehension. This means he does not have a succession of events, one thing after another. That would involve change. First it had happened, then it hadn't happened, or first it hadn't happened, then it had happened. There's all sorts of ways of talking about this that immediately go beyond what we can fully grasp. But notice the goal of it, the payoff. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Meaning, therefore, you can count on what God has said. Infinite. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less than this house that I have built. If you want to make this one strange, God being infinite in size, for example, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, does not mean he's really big. It means he doesn't take up space. It doesn't mean he's really big so he fills the space. All of him is everywhere. All of him is present everywhere. He's not the sort of being who requires a space to exist. He doesn't exist. He's not bound by space, constrained by space. Meaning if you're going to get this term right, you have to talk about it to the point of not fully understanding it. And if all you're picturing is God is really big and has been around a long time, that's an idol. Infinite means transcending space, the very basis for the existence of space and time, the one to whom the very existence of space and time points. It's not about way at the beginning of the timeline, God got it started, first of all, though we can say things like that. Rather, it's about the whole timeline. All of it is upheld by him. Likewise, for space, God is infinite. Letter G, Almighty. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then letter H, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. What I want you to do there then is hear those words. Now, these are words we can relate to because these are things we participate in as humans. Right? God is love, we love. God's love is different than ours, but it is not totally different from ours. We share in his love. Our love comes from God and so on. So we relate to these. But all of these now must be heard non-idolatrously, meaning they're not just like us. They are possessed by God in a way that is proper to all the things we have just said, that he is infinite, incomprehensible, and eternal. Exodus 33 verse 19, the moment where the very being and presence of God is going to pass before Moses And you have the the wonderful discussion about how God cannot be seen, but Moses is going to see him, but he can't. God's going to somehow make himself known, but again, not in a way that's fully revealing. We read these words. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. When God in his very being is before Moses... He describes it as all my goodness, his goodness passing before him. What a a beautiful 
announcement of God's character. And the beauty of that, again, must be heard in terms of all the other attributes as God being simple. His goodness is not a part of him that he could turn off or remove or do away with. It is rather one way of describing, one aspect of being refracted through his works and his creation of who God is as the creator. Well, why does all of this matter? It is for our good that the scriptures reveal the attributes of God and warn us against the danger of idolatry. It is for our good. As I have enjoyed growing and learning about and studying these things over the years, the thing I have been most struck by in how, in, in, in how these things are for our good is letter A, God is. Simply want to say in letter A, God is. That I have delighted in growing and appreciating how Article 1 is describing these things as being the way in which creation proclaims the existence of God. So that the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, Romans 1 verses 19 and 20, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That part of the wisdom and part of the joy of thinking of God in these ways is that these are ways where the scriptures say, look at the world. Where the scriptures say in ways that are philosophically deep and sophisticated and strong and fruitful say, look at how creation, the very existence of the universe, makes clear the existence of the creator. The way the scriptures say that this is not a leap of faith, it is not Pascal's wager, it is not simply irrational commitment because you like this sort of thing, but that the very existence of the universe compellingly proclaims that God is, that the creator is. But more than that, let her be. God is faithful as the God of covenant. And the attributes of God are revealed in their unity at the cross and resurrection of Christ and the sending of the Holy Spirit. That these attributes of God, who God is, as announced, proclaimed by the, the, the very creation, the heavens declaring God's, God's glory, converge or are made most clearly visible in the work of God in Christ. So these are not things proclaimed abstractly from that, but that Christ is the eternal Son of God through whom the world was made. And so when Christ comes into the world, when he dies, when he rises again, when God's love and grace are made visible, it is the Word through whom the world was made who is making God known in all of that. And so there is a unity then of who God is in this eternalness, this incomprehensibleness, and who God is as the faithful God of covenant, who loves you, who sent his son to die for you, who raised Christ from the dead to give you life, who sent the Holy Spirit, who promises you a future. All of those are, are again, God's attributes, who he is being refracted in his creation, proclaimed in the world through the incarnation of his son. And so finally, let her see, the scriptures proclaim that God is incomprehensible for our comfort. 
I don't want to back off on this point that we need to talk about these things. And I know it's often difficult. I know it's often a challenge. But that it is precisely, exactly God's incomprehensibleness that is proclaimed in this way. Meaning it's not there's some things you understand about God and those are comforting. And then there's things that are beyond our understanding and that's just scary. But that the incomprehensibleness, the beyond our understanding is also proclaimed for our comfort. Ephesians 3, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Because God is incomprehensible, because he is beyond you, he is able to do more abundantly than you even ask or think. That the thing in your life that is frightening, that you pray about, that you cry out to God about, that aspect of the brokenness of the world, God is able to answer. He's able to rescue, to act, to do, to fulfill his promises more than you could even ask for, more than you could even think that to know to want. His incomprehensibility means he can solve what we face. He can solve sin and the curse in a way that is beyond our full comprehension. And that is for our comfort. And notice how again, this verse leads to worship. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. As we turn from ourselves toward God, as we refuse to make God fit in our minds, this is in itself an act of worship. And you are therefore engaging in that which will be eternal, what you have been made for as his creatures. For as we said at the beginning, letter D, the goal of all theology is worship. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your faithfulness in making yourself known. Through your creation, as the heavens declare your glory, through your word, through your acting in our Lord Jesus Christ and your spirit in making yourself known to us. For all of this, we praise you. We also praise you that you are beyond our full comprehension. And we desire to ascribe to you the glory that is due to your name as we seek to think faithfully in response to what you have said in your word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.